Travolting, covering the Thin Red Line. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, folks, to our episode on the Thin Red Line. Uh, uh, not the intro I thought we were going to start with, yeah, but uh, I was going to say, like, hey, Jeff, what color is that chair that you're sitting in right now? The chair was red. And the room was blue. We were there covering a John Travolta film. But I, I, I spent the whole time wondering, why? Why were we here? Why would we commit 33 episodes to John Travolta? What was I doing with my life? Could I never return to those quiet, sunlit days back in Pennsylvania? I would never know. Like, But I, I was here now. I don't even want to stop you. <laughs> You're like, are we going to do the whole podcast like <laughs> What this? if we did the whole episode in monologue? Terrence Malick monologue. Uh, so yeah, folks, we're covering yeah. The Thin Red yeah, Line, 1998, Red. directed by Terrence Malick. Yes. Based on the James Jones novel. Yes. The uh, cracking uh, open my Red Bull. Yeah, he's cracking open the Red Bull, folks. That's not a, a beer. Thin red. Well, <laughs> you know, all the beers were drank by Jack before he moved out last week. Oh yeah. Um, How are you feeling about that, by the way? I'm still gotta find a subletter. We're still working on it. Bill Clinton didn't do it. He, he's he's being noncommittal. <laughs> he's being noncommittal. Is all I'm gonna say. Uh, you know, if Bill Clinton has any problem with anything, being yeah. noncommittal yeah, is definitely <laughs> one of them. Bill has, <laughs> Bill has, a commi- has commitment issues. Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. But anyway, anyway, um, yeah, the Thin Red Line, the longest movie we've covered so far. Is it really? Yes, um, nearly three hours. Wow. Um, also, one of the, if not the most acclaimed movies we've covered, uh, It's up there among you know films like Blowout and whatnot that uh, yeah. Pulp Fiction with like universally strong reception. But I'm not gonna lie though, like I barely heard of this movie. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, because I think, didn't this come out the same year, Saving Private Ryan? Uh, yes. Either the same year or the year after. Yeah. I just remember, like, reading the reviews, and a lot of the reviews were saying, like, kind of similar takes, which is, this movie suffers from being, like, analyzed right next to Saving, Saving Private, Private Ryan. Ryan. So I did, I like, barely heard about this movie. Yeah, okay, so both this and Saving Private Ryan were nominated for uh, Best Picture at the that year's Oscars, and they lost to Shakespeare in Love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, who else was nominated that year? Um, it was Elizabeth and Life is Beautiful, the uh, Roberto Benigni film. That was a bad year, wasn't it? I mean, some good movies. Shakespeare in Love, though? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a yikes. Shakespeare in I mean, Love? My guess as to what happened is... Respect the troops, folks. <laughs> <laughs> my, my take as to what happened is it, these two movies probably split the votes from each other and Shakespeare in Love just like slid through the middle. It was also, that was a Harvey Weinstein movie that he very heavily lobbied for to win. Mm. Uh, so it was it was a year where that, like the stars just aligned for that to happen and for neither yeah. of the two World War II films to win. Yeah. But two very different World War II movies. Yes, very different. One um, of them, a, li- uh, a 
don't want to say like hyper patriotic because that's not what Saving Private Ryan is. But it's a right. I see where you're going with that yeah. point, but it is definitely, and it's also not glorifying war. Yes, but it is very much like it's more. It's more of a it's res- an American tale. Yeah, it's an American tale about you know honoring the men who gave their lives for our freedom. Yes. Whereas this is a movie about like kind of the futility of it. And also sort of the near damnation yes. of the types of people who yeah. or not. I don't even know if I want to say that just kind of like what people turned into it, in this. It's, war. it's a contemplative movie. That's basically just trying to ask like, why is this happening? And why are these people doing this? Like, what is the point of any of it? And it comes to basically the the answer of there is no point, and we gotta you know like this war is just a miserable experience. So, like, given this came out in '98, well after the Vietnam War, yes, that's kind of the pinnacle war of like pointless death, yeah. and yet the Thin Red Line is about a World key essential battle and yeah. a key essential war. And that's that's what I find so interesting about this movie is that. In Hollywood, um, World War II is very much like, you know, it's the... It is the cinematic... It's the the good war. It's the good war, yeah. There's a reason there's so many World War II movies, because, like, it's very hard to argue with we were doing the right thing in World War II. There were some very morally gray areas of the war. Yeah. Such as, like, you know, experimentation and... Dropping the bombs. Dropping the bombs. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, it's hard to argue against people fighting Nazis. And it's easy. Yes. Because... And we're going to get into a philosophical conversation yeah. real quick into this podcast. Yes. But I mean, this is a philosophical um, movie. <laughs> I then I so. then I feel warranted. Yeah. Thank you for that. A hundred percent agree that like you knew who the enemy was at World yeah. War II. Um, I feel like nowadays with um, yeah. war and terror and all those other all, pretty like, much any war relig- post World War II. Yeah, it it really it becomes more. Yeah, like. Um, I mean, basically, any Vietnam movie is asking the question: Are we the bad guys? Yeah. Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Are, are we the baddies? Um, yeah. And so, and not even just in the philosophical sense about making a movie about World War II mm-hmm. and how easy it is to like you know cartoonize yeah. how evil the Nazis and um, the Japanese Empire was. Mm-hmm. But also the cinematic nature of it. Yes. Because World War II is a very cinematic war. It is. We're not in trenches. Yeah. I mean, 1917 came out, and, like, to think that, you know, to make World War One look as cinematic as possible, they shot the entire fucking movie. I know it wasn't actually all one shot, yeah. but to okay. make it look like it was okay, all one I'm shot. Okay, I'm going to sidebar, so I'm going to sidebar. Yeah. I get so fucking frustrated when people talk about 1917, they're like, it was made to look like one shot. In the middle of the movie, there is a very specific cut. Yes. He gets hit, and he, he gets knocked out. It goes to black. I, it comes back I don't argue in a that. different angle. I don't argue that. One bit. I'm not arguing with you. I just get really annoyed. People are like, it's all made to look like one shot. And I'm like, no, it is made to look like two, two shots. shots. <laughs> get your fucking shit together. Okay. Get Fair your point. shit together. Fair point, <laughs> Jeff. All right. But the fact that, that those are the measures that they had to take to really squeeze that lemon yeah. of good cinematography for a mm. World War One film. Yeah. Because it was all fought in plain green, it was like it was guys. Land it was guys a hundred feet apart from each other in a trench. Yep, they would maybe achieve like six feet a day. <laughs> yep. Whereas World War Two, we're talking like 
post-apocalyptic Paris, France. Yeah. We're talking about the jungles and the islands of the Pacific. Yeah. We're talking about airfields and, and naval large battles. Large groups of guys fighting each other. Large scale, like bombings and yeah. everything. Like World War Two, just if you just read it on paper, there's movie scenes in yes. there. It like D Day. Mm-hmm. D Day and Saving Private Ryan. It's like yeah. as brutal, awful as it is to watch that scene, like all Spielberg had to do was do shaky cam. Yes. It, it it sells itself. And it fast cut, fast paced, put a lot of extras on the, on the beach mm-hmm. and get some blood spatter and guns and VFX and some machine gun fire and boom. Yeah. It's like, it's not complicated. Mm-hmm. D-Day itself is a cinematic like event. event. And so, and going back to the Thin Red Line, this is particular about the Guadalcanal yes. battle, which was a... Um, key essential uh battle in the war in the pacific yes so to go on another tangent <laughs> have you seen the hbo series the pacific which was a spielberg hanks executive produced not, one i've seen the first three episodes of the band of brothers and i have not seen anything else i haven't seen much of band of brothers well the pacific is like band of brothers yeah, but band of brothers in the pacific in the pacific and they're making a third one about called what about the air campaign for some reason, Hanks and Spielberg decide every 10 years they're going to do a World War II miniseries. I mean, okay. I'm not going to argue that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the Pacific does float from, like, like you know, episode one's the Guadalcanal, episode two is, like, Iwo Jima, and then episode yeah. three is Okinawa. Like, it is, like, and well, you follow these... To, to correct you, episode one is the Phantom Menace, but go on. <laughs> you want me to stop with the tangents? No, keep going with the tangents. I Are you the, sh- okay. No, I enjoy... I just had to... Okay. Well, I, I, it's just it's interesting where they talk about the futility mm-hmm. because that was something that, historically speaking, was... Essential for the war. It, essential, but everyone is particularly like when you, when you hear the stories of the soldiers that mm-hmm. were the Marines who fought in uh, the Pacific against yeah. the Japanese Empire was the strange method that we did on that war, which yeah. was we went from small speck of island to small speck of island. Yeah. Until we got to we took, Japan. It was an island topping. Campaign. It was an island topping. Yeah. Um, and it just seemed, and it, it seemed like an odd strategy because, you know, in Germany, everything's landlocked. Yeah. All you have so to you do just is just move. come in like, and just send all your forces mm. uh, west while Russia's going east and you just, yeah. you know, converge on your enemy. Whereas the Japanese empire had all these little airfields and territories yeah. around uh, the Pacific, which were strategic in some places. But there were always, like, questions and thoughts of, like, you know, which islands do we hit? Yeah. Which islands do we not hit? And why aren't we just going straight to the Japanese mainland? Like, or mm-hmm. why are we not going through China? Or why yeah. are we not going through Vietnam? Like, all these different ways. The fact that we island hopped yeah. and sacrificed a lot of men because, like, the thing about the strategic uh, strategy with um, the Japanese soldiers on these islands is how dug in they yeah. all were I mean, quite literally dug in Iwo Jima <laughs> is the size ditches. Iwo Jima I believe we should fact check me on this I'm gonna look it up is the bloodiest battle in World War II Man, fact wanna, check me on that what was the bloodiest battle in World War II I'm pretty sure it was Iwo Jima bloodiest battle World War II and they might say bloodiest battle in the Pacific or the bloodiest, battle of Okinawa was the bloodiest. which is another war in the pacific island against japan yeah it was one hundred eighty thousand u.s troops to send on the pacific island of okinawa what was 
what was Iwo Jima though? How many people died in Iwo Jima? Uh, the reason why I'm so on it is because Iwo Jima is like the pinnacle example yeah, of what used... was wrong with our strategy. Because Iwo Jima is a rock. There's not it's not a jungle. There's like hardly any trees at all. It's like a flat patch of mm-hmm. land. Well, it's not flat. There's like it's like hilly, but it's the size of Central Park in yeah. Manhattan. It's so small, but because it had an airfield, it was one of the uh, islands that the U.S. Marine needed to take. And we lost so many guys on that in that battle because Mm -hmm. of how well built in all of the defenses were in that island. Yeah. And it just that was like the key pinnacle example of what people thought was wrong with our strategy in the war in the Pacific was our island hopping strategy. Mm -hmm. So. To go back to this movie, The Thin Red Line, Guadalcanal, it kind of starts with that sort of yeah. position, which is we're attacking this random ass island. Yeah. Why it matters to our victory over Japan, we don't know, yeah. but we're told it matters anyway. Mm. And so something yeah. something this movie is to build off of that, that's something this movie is very interested in, is kind of the concept of war in its misery and futility as a situation where someone in power is sending a bunch of other people to fight for their problem or their glory in a sense. Right. Whether it's, you know, a politician or a president sending people to war because that president is at war with, or has disagreements with the president of another country or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Or if it's the, uh, the commander of the battalion, who's sending his men to battle for his glory because it's his last campaign. Yeah. Who is the Nick Nolte character in the film. Right. Also kind of the John Travolta character in the film, but he doesn't have as many scenes. Right. He has one scene. (laughs) One scene in the entire movie. Yes. Which we'll get to. Which we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah. But this movie, I think, is a very... We've said contemplative. Um, It's just very focused on those ideas of what is at the end of the day the reason that all these people died and were so awful to each other. And then to tag on to that, Terrence Malick directed it. Yes, Terrence Malick. <laughs> yeah. Let's go into Terrence Malick. Let's go into Terrence Malick. Uh, since we signed us at the, the tone for the war. <laughs> yeah. Go into Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick, um, director of this film, director of several other films. Some of them you may have heard of. Some of them you may have not. You know, uh, movies like Tree of Life, New World. Um, he started as did many of the directors we've covered with the you know the uh, new Hollywood movement in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Two films come out then: Badlands and Days of Heaven. Uh, Days of Heaven being a Martin Sheen vehicle that is a very lovely little movie. I would highly recommend it. It's not a little movie, but very lovely movie. Um, and then he just basically retires. <laughs> he does two movies. He's like, all right, I gotta take some time off. He goes off. Um, he's a very mysterious figure. He doesn't like his photo taken. Uh, so for the longest time, there was just this one image of him in like a straw hat that would appear on every single like IMDb and Wikipedia page of Terrence Malick. Yeah. He has since gotten better and like he attends premieres now and lets pictures being taken of him. Um, but he takes, you know, 20 years off. Uh, Days of Heaven was 1978. He comes back. He starts like getting word in the mid 90s that he's going to make another movie. Um, and immediately Hollywood like loses their mind because like if Malik's coming back, he did two masterpieces. He was known for just being l- a mysterious figure who everyone wanted to work with at the time. Yeah. Never got the opportunity because yeah. you 
stop making movies for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and immediately everyone wants to be in business with him. Um, and that kind of answers a lot of the questions about this movie. Yes. He gets... The, there was some question about funding this movie, but at the end of the day, the producers kind of just like gave him carte blanche. They gave him a blank check for this movie. What um, was the budget? Uh, the budget of this movie was uh, fifty-two million. Jesus Christ! Because um, like they were like, oh, we got you know, here's a uh, yeah, here's um an old Entertainment Weekly article. Um, the producers kind of talked about they got Malik to agree to work with them by catering to his every whim. Uh, they basically just let him do whatever he wanted in pre-production. Yeah. It took, he wrote a 300-page script. Uh, he started writing it in like 1989. <laughs> the movie didn't come out until nine years later. So he obviously took a lot of time rewriting and working on it um, and kind of putting the thing together. There was a, a time when Sony pulled the plug on the movie because it was getting too expensive. Malik found new producers. They uh, came back and they, you know, got the movie made. But also, Malik had to cast the movie. And uh, like I said, everyone wanted to work with Terrence Malick. So this movie has one of the most stacked cast I think I've ever seen in the movie. Honestly, I think those most stacked cast I've ever seen I think as well. every single actor ever is in this movie. Every single male actor. Every single male actor is in this movie. Yeah, and then also uh, Miranda Otto is in this. Movie. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's the, the, in this the movie. one female character. And her don't ask what her development is, folks. You'll just get upset. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, no lines. Yeah, and you know, Terrence. I'll get back to the actors, but Terrence Malick has a very specific way of filming movies. Yes. Um, there's this Michael Fassbender quote I always remember from. I think it was a Night of Cups, or a Song to Song. One of the, I think he's in both of them, but uh, Michael Fassbender was describing working with Terrence Malick. He's like, "You will be there in front of the camera, acting your heart out, giving the best performance you think you've ever given. You will look at Terry, and he's thirty feet away filming a lizard on a rock." <laughs> yeah, there's a lot um, of that in this movie too. Malick basically random cutaways to yes. small insects. Now and... there's a lot of nature photography during it. He likes, you know, kind of a free camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he'll be like, you know, he'll look at the actors and then he'll just see something and then he'll turn the camera away, grab that. And then in the edit, he finds a lot of his movies in the editing room. He overshoots. Yeah. Um, and then he just kind of pieces it all together into a thematic line, even if it's not like a direct story line. Right. Like, um, there's moments in this movie where like someone gets shot and rather than like showing them get shot, it like cuts to a tree, like falling over, <laughs> over like an insect, like jumping. Um, yeah. And it all works. It all comes together. It definitely, you never feel discharred from the theme. Yes. Of what it's trying to say. It always is very consistent as much as you might feel, uh, disheveled narratively sometimes mm -hmm. where it's like wait who are we t focusing on now like who's the main character of this movie and like what's exactly happening here um i feel like thematically speaking it's all sort of being hounded with every single frame and every single scene mm -hmm. that i i read on imdb trivia as um resourceful as that is yes as... that malik shot almost everything like under three lighting conditions yes. one was like direct sunlight one cloud was cover and cloud cover his ideal and then one was like ideal which what does ideal mean ideal probably means that they lit it 
Like they would add flags and whatnot. Interesting. Like he, his movies are shot in almost a documentary style. Mm-hmm. Um, where a lot of it's like, you know, kind of figuring out the camera angles in the moment. Yeah. And then obviously capturing a lot of that nature photography and whatnot. But um, I think when it comes to the lighting, he's just like, all right, let's just shoot it. And then he's like, all right, cloud's coming. Let's just shoot it again. And he's like, all right, Gaffer, Key Grip, you guys go in there for 10 minutes, figure something out, and then we'll shoot it again. I have a a, a short little story from a project that I'm currently working on right yes. now, um, which will be remain nameless. But this is going to sound very film bro, by the way, so you might as well mark the dinger right now. Yeah. Um, so for folks who are non-filmmakers who listen to this podcast, um, oftentimes like when we see like an exterior on our call sheet or on our schedule, yeah. most of the time we're going to move fairly quickly lighting wise. Yeah. Because, uh, obviously the sun is your main source of light. Mm. And, um, but what comes with that are some pros and cons what I just listed yeah. before with pros shooting outside in the sun is that it's shorter time for lighting setups. But one of the negatives is like direct sunlight is not always the most favorable conditions. Yes. It can look ugly. It can look pretty ugly. Like you have a lot of harsh shadows. You have to put a lot of filters in for the camera. So it like balances out the lighting in some kind. You don't get that much like contour depth and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so everybody always tells me that the best exterior daylighting condition is overcast. Yes. Overcast is the best because clouds are just one giant fucking bounce or one giant diffusion to the sun that sort of softens and flattens like everything that gives you a little bit more dynamic like range to work with for mm. if you want to do something different in post. Whereas direct sunlight, you're kind of like cornered into that um, contrast, that look. So when I saw that, well, basically what I was going to say in my story is we were shooting an exterior day scene. Uh, it's the first thing on our schedule. Yeah. And our call time was like noon. Sun is directly above us, not a cloud in sight. We start shooting. And then uh, about an hour in, our AD goes with the walkie and says, um, all right, so we're actually going to move inside and shoot the interior first. And then we're going to come out and shoot this right before we go to lunch. It's going to be like 6 p.m. Which for what it is right now, it is uh, September, September 12th. Like, 6 p.m. is not quite sunset. This is our first episode recording in a uh, post-Matrix Resurrections trailer uh, world. (laughs) We should talk about that at some point. But anyway. (laughs) uh, No, so the sun is, like, not quite setting yet. But it's also behind enough buildings to cast, like, a giant shadow over it. But it's still daylight enough out where you get your exposure that you need. And then they reshot it that way. So this whole idea of like, really, like they're going to like reshoot scenes, particularly because of the, like the daylight and how it looks. I'm like, yeah, that happens. And and the thing is like, when we say like they shot each scene three times, it's not, we shot each scene, they shot each scene three times, like in a row, they shot the scene and then sometimes they come back to it weeks later and shoot it in different conditions. Right. Cause this though, the first like two hours of this movie are ostensibly the exact same set. Mm -hmm. The first two hours of the movie is basically them just taking a hill on Guadalcanal. Yeah. And then the latter, the latter hour is them defending the hill and going down the other side, uh, which is pretty much. It's funny for a three-hour movie; they, they maybe achieve like one mile of distance <laughs> in terms of which plot. goes with the theme of the whole movie. Yes, the pointlessness of it all. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah. I. The. I looked up 
Did you have more to say about the story, or was that the? No, that was basically okay. it. But Just like the madness nature of filmmaking yeah. and how Terrence Malick embodies that at times. Yeah, I looked up the because uh, I had mentioned like the the funding got pulled for this at one point. I looked up the context of that. Uh, Sony had agreed to fund the movie for a good while prior to its release um, through the producers of the movie. Um, you know, there's Robert Michael Geiser, Grant Hill, and John Robardo were the three producers on the film. Uh, by the end of it, they did not speak to Terrence Malick anymore. There's <laughs> a lot of stories like that. There's a lot of stories um, that uh, he hated the producers and did not want them on set. At um, one point, he would bar he, them. He's a genuine artist um, and wants his art not being filtered by uh, you know development executives and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but Sony pulled the movies. They didn't think it could be accomplished. Three different production companies, including Fox, who ended up releasing the film uh swept in and gave the 52 million dollar budget which the movie was shot with um and succeeded with uh and for reference saving private ryan was 70 million 70 million yes yeah. so this was shot for cheaper than that i think a big part of it was just that this has less locations than saving private ryan and less and less battle scenes and less cgi less cgi less grand scale yeah. scenes and like, there's no like storming of a town in this movie it's all wilderness right well you can imagine like 20 million of the 70 million in saving private ryan was mm-hmm. all the d-day scene yeah probably like for as fucking madness as that probably was yeah. but yeah the, uh the casting process of this movie was basically oh, like God. a four-year event jeez because word started seeping out that like malik was gonna make another movie around the mid-90s um and Every male actor in Hollywood either got sent a script or requested the script or met with Malick at some point. And it's also like World War II. Yes. Like, I were there a, there were a lot of World War II movies that came out in the nineties, right? Yeah. Because we, I maybe it was like that dawn of the CGI yeah, that was helping. And, and the nineties was the was a big period of like kid guys whose parents fought in World War II were at the age where they were making movies mm. and they want to make movies to commemorate them. Yeah. I just you know why Spielberg made Saving Private Ryan because he wanted to like commemorate um, his parents' generation and whatnot. Same in Schindler's List, like just a yeah. few years earlier than that. Yes. Yeah. And so that's very much like, you know, the mid 90s is when that started to happen more so. Yeah. Um, so you hear Terrence Malick, you hear World War II film. Yes. I'm a guy. That, like, <laughs> sign me up. Literally every single actor. Um, is listed as like having met for like Martin Sheen apparently uh, was in discussions for a long time because he'd worked with Malik. He had worked with Malik before, and he apparently at all of like the auditions and like table reads and whatnot would read the screen directions, and then he does not appear in the movie and never filmed anything for it. He just like liked working with Malik and thought he'd get a role, and he didn't. Wow, which I'm sure he harbors no ill will over there. Um, but here, here's just a list of just casual names that I can just see. Oh, yes. Please list some of these casual names to our uh, audience. Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Gary Oldman, George Clooney, uh, Kevin Costner, Will Patton, Peter Berg, Lucas Ox, uh, Derek, uh, Dermot Mulroney, Johnny Depp, Edward Norton, Matthew McConaughey, William Baldwin, Ed Burns, Josh Harnett, Phil Seymour Hoffman, Stephen Dorff, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Nick Cage, Tom Sizemore, Bill Pullman, Mickey Rourke. <laughs> um, most of these people uh, ended up not filming anything for the movie. Yeah. Uh, but they all met for it. But a lot of people were in this movie, though. Yes. Um, 
the main characters of this movie are uh, basically Jim Caviezel as yep. a I cannot remember any of the names of this movie. Uh, uh, he I plays do not. Know. Private Robert E. Lee Witt. I think they just call him Witt in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Jim Caviezel is more or less the lead. Yeah. Sean Penn gets top billing. Right. But uh, Jim Caviezel is basically the lead. Adrian Brody is also in a lot of this movie, though he doesn't have any lines. Because he's the main character of the book. Yeah, this is based on a novel, by it's the way. It's based on a novel. Yeah. And Adrian Brody is the main character of the novel. But uh, he's not the main character of this movie. He has no lines in this movie. Um, you have Nick Nolte. Yes. Um, who is one of the main faces of this movie as well. Base. I'm just going to judge like main character off of people who have monologues in this movie. It's basically Jim Caviezel, Sean Penn, Nick Nolte, and uh, Elias Cotius. You wouldn't put... Um... You want to put Woody Harrelson in there? Because I know he does. Spoiler: He dies. Yeah, he's pretty the, early in the movie. He's not. But, he's not in it long enough. Okay, Eli- Elias okay. Cotius is in more of that than him. That's true. Um, fuck, Jared Leto's in this. Yeah. Um, fun fact: Elias Cotius uh, was on the show I work on for like four seasons. Uh, Chicago PD. Uh, oh, he's, wow. he's no longer on it, but. Wow. How was he? Uh, I never worked with him. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, passed up on a really good story. I did. <laughs> really, that was a great story uh, that I was able to tell right there. Yeah. Um, but basically, like, you know, they filmed it with Adrian Brody as the lead. He ended up not being the lead because of Malik's, like, weird editing. And from what all the actors involved in this movie talk about, like, none of them were really sure how big their role was going to be. Do like, you... they would film for weeks. Like, George Clooney filmed for weeks. And he's in one shot. Yeah. Uh. Uh, what's his name? Billy Bob Thornton filmed for quite a while. Oh my gosh. And is not in this movie. Billy Bob Thornton apparently spent months recording monologues for this movie that are not in the movie. Jesus. No, I have a little inside scoop. Tell me the scoop. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton, the reason why they end up not using him is because he showed up in character as Sling Blade and he refused to, uh, and uh, he refused. <laughs> no. <laughs> shut the so fuck up. Shut, shut the fuck up. And uh, he refused Stop. to get out of character. <laughs> I'm turning and, your no, mic volume no, all the um, way down. It's going all no, the way no, down. No. Goodbye. You, no, you can hear me. You can Stop. hear me. I'm you gonna... can hear me. I know you can hear me. Um, but like, it just <laughs> turn my turn my volume back up. Your vo- I never turn it down. Um, but can we but, please? Yeah. Well, like, the the thing is, it would just be watching a scene. There'll be like all these troops and they're running through the joint and they hear. <laughs> French fried potatoes, I reckon. The Japanese be taking over, but I reckon around five ish o'clock got me my sling blade. Uh, I reckon. <laughs> he just monologued for months in the sling blade voice about the futility of war. And also how he wanted. <laughs> reckon I have me some of the biggins. Um. But it is actually true that Billy Bob Thornton did record months of dialogue for this movie. And you don't act, you don't know the real reason why he's not in that, other yeah. than Terrence Malick's editing. Well, stuff. because he showed up in character as right. himself from right. Primary right. Colors. All right, all right, okay. So, no, I was going to go off of a tangent where you fucking derailed the podcast again. <laughs> um, Alien Covenant. Yes, good movie. James Franco. In one scene, one shot. In one shot, dead. Well, that was just because his best friend was in the movie and he wanted to work with him. So, like, he wasn't in, like, any other scenes that got cut? No. 
they filmed like a prequel short film that James Franco was in. Um, but he just wanted to be an alien because He wanted to work with Ridley Scott, uh, and he was best friends with Danny McBride. And also, this is before he like uh, sent dick pics to like a seventeen-year-old. Um, right. Um, but yeah, that's why James Franco's not in that movie much. Okay. Copy that. Copy that. All right. So, um, but, but yeah, there are a lot of actors in this. Every single actor ever is in this movie, um, and including our boy John Travolta. John Travolta. Um, who appears very well on the movie. I suppose we could just jump right into the... You the, know, we talked 30 minutes about the context corner of this movie. Yes. And I feel like I let that kind of happen because I feel like once we actually get into the plot, yeah, we're not going to have that much to say. At yes. least I won't. I mean, this this movie doesn't have a plot necessarily. Here, Here's my contribution. Like, the way I'm going to talk about the plot of this movie is yeah. by which actors pop up when yes. and where and when they we can stop. basically we, should, we can basically just talk about individual characters yeah um but last bit of context for this movie yeah um it's shot for roughly like 130 140 days damn um, which is a long shoot wow 100 of them was in australia um they were going to try and shoot at actual guadalcanal but logistically, it was just going to be impossible. Yeah, with the amount of extras and people they'd have to bring to and a fucking infrastructure. Yeah, to a historic <laughs> battle site to to like a nearly abandoned jungle. That's where like something about like work again. Mark the dinger right now for film yeah. bro talk. But be, working more in like film now. Yeah, I realize how important infrastructure is. Yes, this whole fucking idea where it's like, yeah, we spent seven days in the jungle filming this one scene. I'm like, bullshit. You did. You mean to tell me, listen, Willem Dafoe had a trailer. <laughs> yeah. And like Charlie Sheen had a Pimo he could use. And like they all had like places, private changing areas where they could change into their yeah. soldier outfits and then a fucking Jeep that took them back to their mm-hmm. hotel in Thailand or whatever. Don't you tell me that we just like bummed it out in the jungle with our camera team and our sound department for seven days. No, you did not. <laughs> you had cars, you had equipment. Like people, yeah. listen to me. Like, the Hollywood, the film industry is surrounded by luxury, and as brutal as it might be on the grunt workers like Jeff and I, it is still like they have to have some decency in how they treat people. And sometimes there's a lot of money put into these movies, and a good portion of it goes into making sure you can fucking shoot safely and logistically. Yes. So, yeah, they're, Guadalcanal, they're... get the fuck out of here. Yeah. They they attempted it, but as a uh, John Toll shot this film, beautifully shot movie. Yeah, beautiful um, shot. He's also shooting. Um, wait, no, he's not. Never mind. What were Never we mind. gonna say? Wait, is he? What what? Uh, he's shooting Matrix Resurrections, I think. Is he? Yeah. Did he shoot just, all the other Matrix? He did not. Bill Pope shot the first three and did not have a good experience in the sequel, so he's not shooting the new one. Um. Anyway, it's enough Matrix talk. Has any plot things come out of the Matrix res- Resurrection? <laughs> like, do we know what it's, like, no. kind of about? No, not in the slice. What does, like, the I, IMDb I have, say? I have read ideas and theories. Um, like what? Let's talk about it. Okay. You're the one who wanted to wrap this up. It says, uh, the Matrix Resolu- Resurrections 2021, the plot is currently unknown, and it's yes. a poster of the red and blue pill. Yes. The choice is yours. So... Um, don't i'm not doing it um but (laughs) the there's a really fun idea that you you've watched the trailer for matrix resurrections 
I've watched the teaser. I've not watched the full trailer. You've watched the trailer? I have not what watched are you the trailer. Doing with your life. I haven't watched the trailer for like I haven't just I haven't watched movies, bro. Yeah, other than no. your the fucking John Travolta <laughs> movies that I have to watch every fucking week. <laughs> every other week. Yeah. But um at the end of the trailer, like Keanu looks like present day Keanu, like he has the beard and the long hair and everything. Um, and at the end of the movie, a trailer, a character says to him, like, back to where it all began, back to the Matrix, using the term the Matrix. And so, this, and at multiple points in the trailer for Matrix Resurrections, you can see shots from the original Matrix movie, like yeah. being played on TVs and projectors within the world of the Matrix. Wait, what? So, there's... We're not talking about reimagined no, we're talking. Shot we are talking like, scene, care, like, like Keanu Reeves is standing in front of a shot of Keanu Reeves from the first Matrix movie, like and a TV like a, plane, and not like a security camera, like an actual shot from the movie, like a TV playing the shot. Yes, like a TV is playing the Matrix, and he's watching it. Yes, and so there's a, theories that the plot of the movie is um, Thomas Anderson is an actor who is in. The movie, the, Matrix, the movie. Matrix, and while filming a fourth Matrix movie, discovers he's actually in the Matrix, and that the Matrix has created the Matrix within itself. Like the move, the Matrix has created the movie, the Matrix within itself, to fool people, and Neo, from not knowing that they are within the Matrix. Okay, so this is actually a YouTuber film theory. This does not sound like the best movie ever made. So this was actually... We're going to go on this tangent. It's fine. We're going on the uh, Matrix tangent. Uh, so Film Theory, which is a YouTube channel, I'm going to give credit, although he's a much bigger channel than we are, uh, had a series of YouTube videos about like the theory of the Matrix. And it was talking about particularly with the end of Matrix um, Reloaded, where when Neo gets out of the Matrix and he's able to stop the, um, what are they called, Sentinels? Yes, yeah, the was. Sentinels with his like with telekinetic powers, and he's like, "How?" It's like you know, in the movie they they say that it's because that his powers in the Matrix are transferring slowly to his real life body. Don't, don't. I'm not doing it. <laughs> what do you? I just keep going. Don't. Um. <laughs> um. But I, I, I what film, I just saw Sling Blade walking over from the corner of my I won't dare. I will fucking hate this <laughs> fucking podcast. All right, just keep going. Keep, keep going about the Matrix. Okay, so he was talking about how, uh, like, you know, in the movie it describes that Neo's Matrix powers are slowly transferring into his real life yes. body. But what the film theorists, uh, what he says that is that when they escape the Matrix, they're still in the Matrix. They're still in the Matrix. And they're just in a different the layer of the Matrix. created multiple layers to the Matrix to instill control. Yes. So, like, it makes people think. And it makes sense when you go through the whole architect monologue scene yeah. that they planned Zion all along, that yeah. they were a part of it, that they do this every cycle or whatever, yeah. where they crush, they, you know, they let 10 people escape the Matrix, create Zion, and then they destroy it. They, like, reset the Matrix or whatever, and then they yeah. do it again because that fixes the anomaly of Neo or who, yes. whatever the fuck. And he's like, that could all just be bullshit. It's just something to tell yeah. Neo so he doesn't doubt that. God, do you ever think of how The Matrix is the best movie ever made? I mean, it's pretty good. It's the best movie ever made. 
Okay. It's up there. Is this a bit you're doing? No, I'm dead serious. Yeah. It's up there. A lot of people would probably agree with that statement, that The Matrix is one of the best movies ever made. And then they had two really bad sequels. No, hey, hey, hey. Reloaded Rules. Uh, And then Revolutions is pretty good. Um... If the Matrix is a five out of five, Matrix Reloaded is like a four and a half out of five. Really, Revolutions is maybe like a three and a half or a four. Can you but, tell me the architect's speech memorized? No, 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 don't oh, look it up. Just memorized. Uh, the uh, the sequence of events that has brought you here is a and and I can't I cannot okay. do it. Nah. But I <laughs> here. And you still gonna call it a four and a half out of five? Yeah. You expect me to memorize the entire architect's speech? It just seems like something you would do, that you would memorize some shit like that. Because that's like probably I'm the architect. I created the Matrix. I've been waiting for you. You have many questions. Of the processes alter your consciousness. You bring irrevocably human. Ergo, some of my answers you will understand and some you will not. Concordantly, while your first question may be the most pertinent, you may or may not realize it is also irrelevant. Your life is the sum of a remainder of an unbalanced equation inherent to the programming of the matrix. You are the eventuality of an anomaly, which despite my sincerest efforts, I have been unable to eliminate from what is otherwise a harmony of mathematical precision. While it reigns a burden to sedulously avoid it is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure to control, which has led you inexorably here. The first matrix I designed was going... <laughs> I'm not going to keep doing this. Okay. But... Uh... What were we talking about? The thin red line. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're forty minutes into this podcast, yes, and that was our that was the Matrix. That was Matrix talk. Yeah, uh, the new movie looks really good. Uh, great movies, uh-huh. but um, they shot for I, I said they shot for like a hundred days in Australia, which is where the the bulk of this movie is shot. They did some days on the Solomon Islands and three days in the United States. Uh, the Solomon Island stuff was, I'm presuming, the. Uh, the like community that Jim Cavazio starts the movie with, yeah, and uh, the United States is probably just the Miranda Otto stuff that they mostly cut from the movie. Yeah, Travolta might have also been um, that stuff. Because yeah, uh, like the Navy ship scenes yeah. were probably all in the U.S. Yeah, those might I would imagine. Um, but right before, and we mentioned there was a rift between the producers and Malik. Right before the movie starts filming, Malik has a a clause inserted in his contract that the producers are not allowed to come to set. They said uh, yeah. they didn't think he was capable of betrayal of this magnitude. Uh, kind of a baller move that he just gets $52 million, bars the people who gave it to him from coming to set, and then just goes off for 130 days and shoots a movie. I mean, it worked out for them, right? It worked out. This movie turned out pretty good. Um, Yeah, that that's... Uh, that, that we're fine. I'm done with context for this movie. We can just launch right into it. 45 minutes into this podcast, yes. we're going to start talking about the plot. Yes. Well, there isn't one. We're just going to have to talk about each character. Yeah. So there's Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel. Uh, and we start very... off with like an alligator going into the water. Yes. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And then very, very normal, chill actor, Jim Caviezel, who's never done anything wrong in his life, um, appears. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. A guy who is very chill uh, and definitely doesn't uh, support QAnon. Uh, <laughs> but Wait, what? It definitely hasn't happened. I don't know this about Jim yeah, Caviezel. Jim Caviezel, he's a very weird guy. Um, he played Jesus in the, the Passion of the Christ uh, and kind of just went from there into more insanity. <laughs> oh, Mel Gibson, why do you break everything we love? Yeah, um, yeah, very, very weird. But he's playing uh, Private Wit, uh, a U.S. Ar- uh, private who has gone AWOL yeah. uh, to live with a community um, 
of Islanders in the South Pacific. With another Marine, too, yeah, right? With another Marine who we never really see again. Yeah. I'm presuming he was a character who had stuff and then was mostly just cut out of the movie. wonder if they were gay lovers. Yeah. Um, possibly. Possibly. This movie doesn't have enough time. It doesn't contemplate on that, but I'm sure it would have given another hour. But, uh, I mean, it's Terrence Malick, so. Yeah. Um, but he's basically, uh, he's just living among this community. It's kind of a, just a beautiful, like, montage sequence, less for, like, five, ten minutes-ish, mm-hmm. of just, like, this very peaceful island life, which Malick is showing us to, like, contrast with the island that he's going to come to later. And when he yeah. goes back to this community, how it's changed. Right. By both his experience with war and just like the, you know, you can never come home again idea. Well, he doesn't really come home. He doesn't. But he does come back to this community later. Um, right. Inexorably changed, to use the uh, the architect's words. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but he's uh, there. A ship shows up. A, sh- a U.S. Navy ship shows up. Um, and who's aboard the ship? Sean Penn, star of uh, She's So Lovely. From She's So Lovely. Yes. Uh, and he's playing, I'm going to have to have this list of the names out because yeah, they, they don't say any I don't, names in this movie. I don't know many names. I, he's playing Sergeant Edward Welsh. Great. Moving uh, on. Yes. <laughs> uh, but he's like a sergeant or something? Yeah, he's the sergeant of he's the not, company. Yeah, he's not top of command, but he's like yeah second or third in command yeah and so he's a superior officer and they lock cavasio up in the brig yeah and he's basically like, you cannot j- rejoin your unit because you went a wall yeah so you're gonna join a new outfit and you're gonna join the you're gonna be a medic you're gonna be a stretcher carrier yeah um which is a punishment in war because basically you just run and you get other people you, out of the you war. pick up you don't do anything dead bodies or injured bodies yes. yeah um but they're in c company Mm-hmm. They use C Company a lot in this movie uh, because that is the organization that they're in. And uh, yeah. this troop ship is heading towards Guadalcanal to uh, reinforce the unit that's there, and then they're going to take uh, the Japanese uh, enforcement on the island. Yeah. And um, we're introduced to Nick Nolte around this point. And... Who's John Travolta, too, right? Yes. Uh, Nick Nolte's playing Gordon Tall, a he, name that they never say in this movie. He's the captain he of the is, battalion? He, he's, Lute- he's the lieutenant colonel. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, because Travolta is playing the... Uh, I think Travolta's playing... Lieutenant he's playing colonel. the He's playing right. the general. Uh, Travolta's uh, the general who's in charge of the whole campaign in this area. It does say general. Oh my God, John C. Riley is in this. Yeah, he has like one line. Um, Brigadier General. Yes. Quintard. Quintard. Uh, okay, John. Yeah. Um, um, this is, you know, Nolte's right underneath Travolta in this. Right. In terms of chain of command. Yeah. He's, Travolta's giving Nolte control of this operation. Yeah, he's he's is uh, commanding officer of the battalion. Yeah. And um, we get a monologue, because this movie has a lot of monologues, as we said. Yeah. At this point, we've already skipped over, like, seven. Right. But um, Nick Nolte is just kind of monologuing in his head about he's old, this is his last war. Yeah. And this is ba- this battle is basically his last chance for glory, to, like, prove have his name written down in the history books and be remembered. That's not going to produce any consequences yes. later. <laughs> uh, something, <laughs> yes. 
uh, when we see Nick Nolte, we see John Travolta pretty quickly, right? Because yes. his first scene is his conversation with John Travolta. Yes. So and he's just discussing the like the or, or organization. The, yeah, the organization, the importance of the invasion. Yeah. That you're going to um, be controlling these troops. I'm yeah. sending you in on this important and mission. This is a Travolta we've never really seen before. Is like, um, kind of the stoic, older, like, power guy of man of power. Can I say it? Yes. He has a mustache. He has a mustache. Cue the hair ranking. <laughs> Welcome to the Hair Ranking. I'm your co-host, Stuart Elmore. And I'm Jeff Sweeney. Uh, John Travolta has a mustache. Yes, But he, he also wears a hat. He wears a sailor's hat. Yeah, it's a little yin and yang right there. A little give and take. So, here's the beef. Do you remember back in 1980... When did Urban Cowboy come out? Uh, 1977? 78? 79, I think. I can figure. 80. 1980. Okay. Um, yeah, 1980. So, you remember when I talked about the beard and John Travolta yeah. and how much I fucking loved it? Yes. But then I couldn't really give it that much pointers because it gets shaved off so quickly? Yes. Well, I mean, while we only see John Travolta for like, what, three minutes mm-hmm. in this movie? He has like three minutes of screen yeah. time, then he's gone. He wears the hat the whole time. He wears the hat the whole time, but he sports the mustache the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be very far on the list. So can I see the hair yeah, ranking? Breaking up Jeffrey. right now. It's not going to go very high up, but I I want to see where Urban Cowboy is because I think it might. You live. have Urban Cowboy pretty low. Yeah, and I think it's going to go around that region. So put it above Urban Cowboy, below she's so lovely. Oh, you're putting it above Urban Cowboy. You just you're, you're well, like Urban Cowboy. He wears a fucking cowboy hat the entire time. He wears a military hat the whole time in this. Well, military hat's a lot sexier than the cowboy okay, hat. Yeah, that's fair. Do you agree? I agree. Yeah, the sailor hat yeah. works much better. So then it comes to a comparison of facial hair, and the beard gets shaved off pretty quickly. This one, he keeps the mustache all yeah. three minutes. All right, so there we go. So there's the hair ranking. Um, all right, back to... So um, the the two of them are discussing, you know, the war. Yeah. And uh, Nick Nolte, he mentions at one point, I believe, that Travolta's younger than him. Yeah. Um, but Travolta's doing an exceptional job i think in the scene of displaying like kind of the air arrogance and like power of a general in that in that position yeah like he he is in charge of the scene he's in charge of the big picture yes he's in charge of the big picture he's in charge of this specific scene malik's good with actors and establishing who's like in charge in yeah. charge in each scene he's good I at power dyna- he's agree. good at the power dynamics completely agree yeah yeah um, I mean, it, it's hard for me to comment on performance-wise yeah. so quickly, yes. but the one thing I will say about this with John Travolta is it does go to a common thread that we've been mentioning yeah. in our previous episodes, which is John Travolta is right up here with all of these A-list actors. Yeah. Further, furthering our claim and our um, conclusion that like this is the A-list era, John yes. Travolta. This Be- is his peak. This, this is era. his peak. I mean, like he... And he is sharing this peak along with the peaks and valleys and hills of yeah. all these other actors that he's like... The Guadalcanal Hills. Yeah, like on deck with. Like yeah. he's right there with like 
Sean Penn is right there with Nick Nolte. He's right there with George Clooney. I mean, like, he's considered... I mean, him and George Clooney have, like, the same amount of screen time. Yeah. Imagine that. Yes. That John Travolta, at a certain period of time, was thought of to be as mm-hmm. famous, if not more famous, than yeah. George Clooney. That's yes. the period we're in right now. Yeah. And I think the performance he gives in this, albeit short, is a bellwether as to what is the future of his career will become because he's starting to age he's getting older he's still like in his 40s in this so he's not like old but he's getting older and he's starting to settle into like kind of the um i'm trying to think of the wording for this but the older boss figure something he'll do a lot of like crime movies as later Mm. um and a lot of movies where he's like you know the bad guy or the heavy or like the tough overlord um yeah. But this is the first time he's playing older, if that makes sense. Okay. In every movie we've covered so far, he's either young, playing young, or playing like a lower status character. In this, he's playing high status. Yeah. High status, a lot of control. Yeah, high status command. with a lot of control, a lot of gravitas. Gravitas is the word I'm looking for. This is the first John Travolta performance, I'd say, has a lot of gravitas to it. Mm. Um, it's something he's going to kind of start settling into in the future, and I think it in part hurts him. Because he's a very charismatic actor, and when you strip away the charisma, he's good at gravitas, but it's not why you go to see John Travolta movie. That's an interesting take. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really not much more to say, because this is a very short appearance in this movie. Yeah. Um, but I think it is a bellwether as to what the future brings in regards to his career. It's a very uh, deep take on a short well, I got period. three minutes. Even. Yeah. I mean, for me, again, to just reiterate... The, my takeaway of him being in this movie in a short scene is that he's right up there with all the yes. A-list actors and that he's kind of made it. Yeah, he's made it to this point. Like, the, the Malik picked him to be in this movie among all, this other, like, this crowd of people who were there or rising. Which means well. his name is equivalent, if not better. Yes. Yeah. He's up there. So, okay. They, uh... They make it to the island. They get... It's the D-Day invasion of the island. They get all... Yeah. They're all in the boats. They get to Guadalcanal. Yeah, you know it's you know everyone's vomiting in the boats and the troop carriers, and they storm the beach. And what do they find? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> There's no one there. <laughs> yeah. So like, ah, and they all run up. They all expecting like gunfire, and they get there, and it's just like they find some remnants that there were people there. Yeah. Uh, but they soon discover that the Japanese have taken a hill, which, according to this summary of the movie, is Hill Two Ten. I have no memory of that being said. Me Hill two ten. And you know, this is something that, like historically speaking, I have a lot of interest in, which is like the particular battle strategies that the Japanese Empire implemented with their troops. Yeah, um, was like the hunker down, dig deep. Yeah. I mean, if you if you watch documentaries on like World War Two, um, particularly battles in the Pacific, the tunnels that the Japanese would dig in these islands was like a whole fucking infrastructure it was a network you could literally i mean i love the scene where they're like they're going over the hill they're putting they're lifting up like these little baskets and tossing grenades but like that little entryway could take you to the other end of the island yeah with like another like you know lid that you could like come up and that was the that was the um the tactical advantage that the japanese had yes on all these islands and the U.S. troops are just guys on foot, yeah, um, walking in these jungles that they had no familiarity with. You know, mm-hmm. the Japanese soldiers have been there for months, getting like encamped, entrenched, and like getting familiar with the island. So, like, 
this is going to sound really bad what I'm about to say, but I played a lot of World War II video games. <laughs> you said it. And in World War II first-person shooters, particularly uh, Call of Duty 5, World at War, when you're fighting in the Pacific. Call of Duty 5. I mean, it is the fifth, but it was just Call of Duty World at War. I know, but just fuck you. Okay. You're calling it Call of Duty 17 or Warzone or whatever the hell they're on now. Uh, so you had you couldn't just like aim at eye level where your enemies yeah. would be. You'd have to aim down at the ground and up at the trees. Yes. Because they're in the fucking trees, man. <laughs> they're in the fucking trees. Yeah. So, and then that's when we got real ugly with our warfare by just carrying flamethrowers. Yes. And that's when things got bad. That's when things got very morally gray. Yes. <laughs> and our warfare tactics, which a lot of people don't like to talk yep. about, but we and definitely the, burned the, whole forests down. But you know who did want to talk about it? Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick. In this movie. Yeah. Because uh, later in the movie, when things start getting very morally gray, and we start kind of seeing the the effects that this war has on the characters and the landscape, yeah. flamethrowers are introduced into the plot. Yeah. Um, but at this point, they haven't yet. And uh, all the troops get to the bottom. We're in, we're basically, at this point, following, like, two squads. Yeah. One um, is the um, Soros guy. Yeah, the, Staros, um, played Staros. by Elias Cotius. And um, then... Woody we, Harrelson's in his group as well. And you got uh, Sean Penn. But then the, and then there's Sean Penn, who has Adrian Brody... And at parts, and at times, Cavazio with him. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other actors who are popping in. Like, I'm like, oh, look, Jared Leto, Tim Blake Nelson, John C. Riley, And then I think Jared Leto explodes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's taken out very quickly. You know, for this movie, he actually uh, blew himself up. Uh, so he could really get into, get into role as the character. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> Come on. He actually blew himself Come up. Come on, man. Um, and he had to restitch himself back together. And so uh, when they get on this island, yeah, they don't find anybody. Yeah. So there's just like a long winded montage scene where they're just like searching. Mm-hmm. They're just going through the jungle looking for any bunkers or hills or things they got to take. And they're just searching. Yeah. And they finally get to their first like objective, which hill is like, 210. Hill 210. And, um, and that's when they're planning the assault. And Nick Nolte is saying that we only have one option of doing a full frontal yes. assault, which is like the first thing you hear in that movie is full frontal assault. Everybody in the audience is immediately going to think bad idea. Yes. If there's any, you know who else thinks of the characters in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> characters not, in the movie. It's not, uh, um, Elias Cotius is like, that's a bad idea. We're not doing it. It's like, why don't we like go into the jungle and flank them yeah. or something? It's like, no, like the jungle's too thick. We N- don't Nolte oh. wants his glory charge yes he wants to be remembered as the guy who led the charge up the hill and even though he will not physically be leading the charge no of course not Uh, because why would he do that he's you know lieutenant colonel yes why would the people in charge of wars uh be in actually fighting them yeah um so they begin their assault yes they start by bombarding uh the hill and uh, mortar fire mortar fire and And nolte says that the mortars aren't going to do anything. Yes. I'm glad you remembered that. I was going to yes. say the same thing. He, he says very clearly, it's like, well, like they're probably not going to do anything, but they'll inspirit the men. Yes. Like, the men will think it's doing something. Like, it's going to cause a lot of explosion at the top of the mountain. The Japanese are too dug in. They're not going to... No, maybe it'll kill, like, two guys. It'll shake them up a little bit. It'll shake them up a little bit. Um, but, the like, our soldiers will be like, yeah, we're bombing the hell out of them. Let's take them. Yeah. It's really more and for so morale. They all charge the hill. 
and it goes very poorly, <laughs> to say the least. Well, they charge the hill like one bit at a time. Yeah. They go up a few like feet, and then they duck There's down like in the grass. Heavy machine gun fire. Yeah, and then we're seeing a lot of guys get blown apart. Uh, a lot of trees and insects jumping around. Yeah, crocodiles biting. Yeah. Um, uh, Woody uh, Harrelson. Jared Leto gets killed. Woody Harrelson uh, is leading a squad, and he. It- accidentally pulls a pin on his grenade and he hops over into the bunker and blows his yeah. ass off he's like i blew my ass off it's like i'm not gonna be able to fuck again <laughs> uh and then he just slowly very there's a lot of slow bleed outs yeah in this no one really dies instantaneous yes. in this movie this movie want, luxuriates in kind of misery slow death in the mis like the pain of war people get shot and they're still alive yes. for a while for like, a while there's like one scene in particular when they're at the top of the hill and like one of the guys soon right before they're about to charge a guy gets shot and they ask like is he dead and they're just like oh, not yet and it's like well stay with him until he dies and yeah. he's right there and he's fully conscious and there's a part where sean penn just over intentionally overdoses a dying soldier on morphine yeah because he knows he'll just suffer if they pull him if they try and get him back down the hill he won't make it in time to rescue him he'll just die slowly bleeding out fun fact um the Battle of the Bulge in Germany. Yes. I know this because my grandfather's brother fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. And while my grandfather's brother was well dead before like I could remember anything, my grandfather had a lot of stories that he would yeah. tell. In the Battle of the Bulge, Germans were known for switching bullets for wooden bullets mm-hmm. because it was more valuable to wound a soldier than kill a soldier. Because yeah. if you wounded a soldier, five soldiers would go to that one soldier yeah. to help them, and it made it easier in target. And it would pull soldiers away from their attack. Yeah. So there was, and the Japanese did the same thing with booby traps, that many of their booby traps weren't lethal. They were all very, like, injury-prone. Yeah. And that was the whole thought process, which was, like, it's better to injure a guy so you have more soldiers go to that person's aid, making them a better target, but also taking away more guns aiming your way. Yeah. Fucked up. Yeah, war is, war, is, uh, <laughs> war is fucked. Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. and Terrence Mal quote, war is fucked. War um, is fucked. Uh, so there's a lot of casualties. Um, I'm, I'm starting to lose grip on the narrative at this point. Yeah. This movie doesn't have a narrative, right? Which is why it's hard for us to, we're, we basically have gotten an hour into the movie at this point. And we're an hour into this podcast. Like we've gotten an hour and like 10 minutes of conversation. Yeah. So the first two hours of this movie are just the siege of this hill. Yeah. And there's a, there's a arguments going on with, um, you know, Nick Nolte and I keep forgetting. Not Sorgerson? Mm. Uh, Star was played Star-os? by Elias Cotius. Elias Cotius. So Elias Cotius and Nick Nolte are having these like conversations over like the communications telephone. They're like, I, with all due respect, sir, like you don't, you're not up here. You don't see what's going on. Yeah. He's like, take and Nick Nolte's like, you hell. take the hell. And so like they're, yeah, take the hell. Yeah, man. take the hell, hell man. Your father. You, you know, you're, you gotta be tough. Our boys are tough, man. Our boys are tough. We're gonna take this hill. Yeah. I gotta. Get the glory for this. Can we just talk about Nick Nolte and Hulk 2003? He's great in that movie. He's so fucking good. He's so good in that movie. You just watch me go. You he just watch me go. And he chews the wire and turns into the electric guy, yeah. man. Oh, I'm your father. Bro. The more you fight, the more I take. You know what I like in Hulk 2003? What do you like? Is his first scene in the movie, aside from like the flashbacks, is like he's like pretending to be a janitor at. Uh, banners research lab yeah and this guard's like can i help you with something he's like trying to be like 
incognito, but he looks like insane. He looks sketchy and as fuck. He's, and like he's just trying to like not show his face. And like he he's kinda getting away with it, except for the fact that when he starts talking, he's like, I don't know I was like, that's very clearly well, there is one uh what's the fucking actress name? It plays Betty in Hulk two thousand three. Uh Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Con- Connelly. So there's like a scene where like Jennifer Connelly is coming out and she sees Nick Nolte, the janitor's like, yeah. Oh, what happened to I don't know what fucking name? Like Pam. It's like Pam. No, he literally, he literally just like Pam is dead. Pam dead. <laughs> it's like yeah, she died uh, a few weeks back. I'm, I'm the new guy. I'm the new like, guy. Oh well, uh, thank you. It's like anytime. It's great that Nick Nolte sounded like that, like in the '80s. Um, hot take, best Hulk movie. Yes. Well, it depends. No, it are, doesn't no, depend it, on anything. Are you defining Hulk movie Eric, as Eric Bana? Are you defining Hulk movie as a movie about the Hulk or a movie in which the Hulk appears? It is better than Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. Yes. It is better than Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> the Hulk in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. So I will clarify this. Okay, clarify what you mean by best Hulk movie. It is the best utilization of Hulk and Bruce Banner character and action wise, my opinion. I don't entirely disagree. I do rather like that movie. I do too. Yeah. I, I um, actually like I, I love Ang Lee's he, and, process. You know, to tie it back to the thin red line, actually. No. Uh, no, <laughs> no, Ang Lee kind of does the same thing in that movie that Terrence Malick does in this, where he cuts away to nature a lot. Like in this movie, just as like, you know, a bullet will fire and then it'll cut to a crocodile like biting a creature and killing it. In Hulk, the Hulk will like destroy three tanks, and then we get like microscopic algae. Yeah, and it like, <laughs> and it, like cuts to like a lizard on a rock, and it goes. Poof. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I actually think, uh, was that was the guy that plays the villains in like every single movie in the early two thousands? Who's like the, uh, not the general, but the guy who like wants a sample. Talbot. Talbot. Yeah, that um, fucking guy is such a cartoony performance in Hulk. He's uh, so funny. And I love the fact that he is like in like with like a neck brace and he, his leg is all, uh, all and he, his legs in like a crutch and everything. Yeah. And he's like still like trying to be this yeah. like evil bad guy villain. I do very much like Hulk. I think the I best. I love it too. Um, they're, they're, I prefer the Avengers and Thor Ragnarok to Hulk 2003 as movies. Oh, I mean, of course. But. Um, but I, I actually think one of the best Hulk scenes is, and we'll get back to Thin Red Line in just a minute. I think in Thor Ragnarok, the moment where Hulk transforms back into Bruce Banner after being Hulk for two years, yeah, or whatever. is one of the is my favorite like individual scene of Hulk. Because hmm. like he sees like the Black Widow video, yeah, and he's just he starts transforming. He's like, no, not Banner, no, and I just think it's a really good scene. They play a nice mix of the Lonely Man theme from the original uh, Hulk show mixed with uh, some Ragnarok music. Uh, it's rather good. I think that Mark Ruffalo was like a good casting choice if you wanted to be like, what is the most like non-threatening yeah. looking guy who can be like, we're hey, not a team, hey, we're a time bomb. We're, we're not a team, we're a time bomb. Hey guys, of being in a subway, a metal tube is kind of a bad idea yeah. for me. Well, that's Edward um, Norton who says that. Oh yeah. Well, he says like me and a fl- me and a floating. Yeah. Boat you want to put me in a floating, floating metal contraption? contraption. <laughs> uh, no, but I think Eric Bana. I I, I is a genuinely Hulk. he's a great actor. Yes. And I love his performance in Hulk. I love the the whole like kind of um 
repressed trauma banner mm-hmm. more so than the ashamed doctor Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because and you kind of get it in Edward Norton. I don't have any comments about it. Fucking Edward Norton Hulk. That's yeah. such a forgettable movie in my yeah, opinion. It's the that, most forgettable movie. Uh, but when it comes to like the the Mark Ruffalo banner versus Eric Bana banner, Ruffalo banner is like the ashamed doctor who created the monster he's become yeah. and tries to repress it. Whereas Eric Bana is like the tormented child who never yeah. quite got past his stuff, I mean, and he has such repressed rage yeah. that metaphorically and physically comes out as a monster well, and i love Hulk 2003 that. is just like a freud movie it is it's a it freud, is. It's, it's literally just a, freud, a movie. freud movie and i love it so the, much the last 10 minutes of that I movie fucking love it the last like five ten minutes of the movie are literally just a therapy session yeah like it's just nick nolte and eric bana in a room together talking about their differences and arguing yeah and like he's like you put this trauma on me it's eric bana working through his like problems i mean in the movie literally is a metaphor of like parental abuse leaving yeah. a, a, a repressed yeah it's about repressed tra- it's about repressed childhood tra- trauma tra- tra- repressed childhood trauma yes great movie fucking great movie yeah you know what else is a pretty good movie thin red line, thin red line. yes <laughs> um they're, they're taking the cell they're taking the cell do we mention this movie we're talking about is three hours long yes. and we're an hour and five minutes into this podcast they're taking this hill they're taking this hill um well, they get through like and the this first. This is why pass. it's hard to describe. This. this is why we keep going tangents because like what we else? can describe every other scene in this movie as they're you know taking the, the next cell. thing I want to talk about is what the river scene. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> I know. I know it's the end of the movie because this, this movie is just experiential. It it's, is. It's hard to discuss. It very. It very much is. We can discuss the philosophy of it, um, well, but, I, which I feel like we have. Yeah, which we have. But uh, let, hold I on mean, for. Let's just like get to the so they took the hill. Well, no, there's there's a little more I want to talk about with them taking the hill. Okay, continue. Just because like there's three actors who are only present in this part of the movie. Um, by the way, did we finish the point where Woody Harrelson dies? Because yeah, Woody Harrelson, Woody Harrelson's dead as hell. Yeah, he he, he dies. Um, but um, Nolte's pissed because Alaskos doesn't want to take the hill, so he storms up and the jet. He thinks the Japanese resistance has lessened, and so he fires. Um, uh, Elias Codius. Um and he's like, we're, we're gonna do a little flanking maneuver, and then we're gonna take the hill. Um, and all by all the way through this, they've been talking about water. Yeah, getting the troops water. Yes, because they haven't had like a good water supply. Also, the the crew of this movie. Um, <laughs> like, we, that's based on the crew of this movie. Fucking like, we need water. Crafty coolers. And they're like, yeah, we can't get it up the hill. <laughs> can't get it up the hill. It apparently took two hours every day to get the crew up the hill. Was it like for real? Yes. Really? Yes. What a fuck? to get the crew to the top of this hill to film. Wait, is this for real? This is for real. They had to like make base camps on the way up the hill because it took so long to get the crew up there. Who's the fucking first AD who just like wakes up in the morning and goes? <sighs> Two like, hour hill. Call time. 9 a.m. Shooting call. 11:30. <laughs> crew call. 9 a.m. Two hour travel time. <laughs> Two hour delayed call to travel to hill. Fucking a. Um, but he goes, ah, "I'm gonna take the hill." And so he orders the full assault, but he does kind of relent and establish a little flanking team led by a suddenly appearing John Cusack. Oh yeah, Cusack is in this yeah, movie. who is good in this movie uh, for the little bit he's given. Like very little bit. Yes. Like he I'm shows about, up. And he does his John Cusack thing where he's like, "Ah, oh, we're gonna take the hill." Um, uh, and so he takes uh, Jim Cavaziel, who has rejoined the frontline troops, 
uh, on Sean Penn's orders because um, he enough men had died that they like need him back, and he's like, I want to be there with the, the men. So he grabs his rifle. Yeah. Jim Cavaziel is kind of a babe in the woods in this movie. Like he kind of remains relatively optimistic for this first half mm-hmm. um, of being like, you know, I'm just here to fight a war, have a good time. I enjoyed my time with those peaceful people. Sounds like a Tinder breath bio. Yes. <laughs> I'm just here having a good time, killing some people. Yeah, killing some uh, soldiers. Yeah. Um, but John Cusack successfully takes the hill. Uh, and aren't we all so lucky <laughs> for <Yep>. it? Um, <laughs> they successfully captured the hill. Yeah. They've done it. He's <laughs> really excited. We're going to have this whole hill by nightfall. Yeah, they give the men a week's leave. Um, God, we are really going through it. Yeah, like what? What else is there to say? There's like an no, hour yeah. of them because just... I, it's like another assault on an encampment. Storos gets relieved of command. The battalion gets sent to rest for a week. Yeah, I'm only three lines down. <laughs> there's there's literally like 30 minutes of this movie where yeah. they're, they're in the exact same spot on the hill, just taking fire and shooting back. Yeah, and it's great. The capital G, great. But I, what, what do I say? They're they're there. Yeah. They did it. Good performances. It's at that. It's at that point when I write down this movie is so fucking long. I stop paying attention. Yeah, like it's hard to take notes. Yeah. Um, so after they take leave, um, which again, Staros is gone. Yeah, they they send Staros back to the U.S. There's like a there's like a quick little bit between Nick Nolte and um, Elias um, where he's talking about you know he's going to send him away. Yeah. He's like, like you know you're not tough for this. It's not good for you to be here. I'll recommend you yeah. for the Silver Star and I'll throw in the Purple Heart with it. Yeah. He's like, why are you throwing in a Purple Heart? It's like because you got scratches on your face and your hands. Yeah. And it's just kind of like that whole, like, you know, run along now. Yeah. Like, you're not built for this. Yeah, like, you're, you're not built for the brutality of this. Like, this is something that changes men and changes, like, war changes people. Which is something And that you have to be a specific type of person for war. You know, talking about this has made me really want to rewatch The Pacific. Mm-hmm. It just deals with a lot of the similar things. Yeah. I think. Uh, uh, there's, like, one particular character mm-hmm. who... Um, isn't in uh, the, the Marine Corps at first, but he wants to sign up. And like yeah. pretty much the first half of the first episode is just his parents trying to talk him out of it yeah. because his dad's a World War One vet. And he's he like, says, this like, is not what you think you're getting this into. This is not what you think you're getting into. Like I did, this, I saw men who came back but didn't really come back. Yeah. And I don't want that to be you as well. Yeah. And sure enough, it's a six-episode series, miniseries, mm-hmm. and he comes back and he's like totally fucked up. Yeah. Like he's just... He saw things. He, he saw a lot of things. And that's basically what Stars kind of happens. Like, he has a, a parting monologue where he gets on the plane and takes off. And he's like, you know, I'm going, but I, m- part of me will always be with this battalion. And it's both, it's it's a, a well-written sequence. Because it's established, like, when he says, part of me will always be with this. It's that, you know, his men will remember him because they respected him as a leader. Yeah. But it's also he's leaving part of himself behind in this jungle. Yeah. And I think that's a very clever metaphor to establish. And then after that, uh, I think it's uh, Jim Caviezel gets a letter from his wife who says she fell in love with the Air Navy yeah. officer. Yeah, Jim Caviezel, who this whole time, it just his whole like monologue thing in this movie is talking about how he's going to go back to Miranda Otto, who's waiting to marry him. Yeah. Oh no, they they had they got married before he left. Oh right, because she asked him for a divorce in the yes. letter. Yes, um, and that's kind of what keeps his chipper attitude this whole time, and why he was like you know, when he was with that uh, the island natives, he was just like, yeah, this reminds me a lot of what home was like for me, and 
the what I'm getting back to later. It's just this sense of peace that I have with these people on this island. And it's during that rest period when he gets that letter from yes. Miranda Otto. It's like, hey, I want a divorce because I want to marry this other guy. Yes. So, yeah, that um, happens. Cut to. Um, he then um, goes back they're, to. Yeah, they're back. The people. Like him and the company, they're all. Well, first, Wick oh. goes back to the I, the natives who we started the movie with. And when he gets there, it's, it's no longer an idyllic paradise. Like, there's sickness there. None of them want to talk to him. They're afraid of him. Totally forgot this happened. And it's, you know, it's the uh, the you can never go home again idea. Yeah. Like, you know, the classic, like, John Ford movies, where it always deals with once you leave home, like, you can never come back. When you come back, you and home will both have changed, and mm-hmm. it's never going to be the same. Yeah. And so he comes back to what, to him, this whole movie has just been this idea of paradise. Mm-hmm. And he gets there, and it's just as shitty as the rest of the world. Right. Um, because they brought, there's, like, in a larger sense, they brought violence to this place. If not directly, then just by him being a part of violence. And that violence has transcended into this. Like, evil is, an, is a concept. Evil is a, an object that just transcends an action. And it enters the world in a permanent sense. That kind of like blew away my look of it. That was a little, that was pretty good. That was pretty heavy. It's kind of um, like kind of like uh, Bruce Banner's dad, old two thousand three. Um, it's it's you know it's, it's what a lot of Stephen King's books are about. Is, you know how evil transcends just an action and stays with a place, and it yeah. changes a place. Um, this is obviously not based on a Stephen King book. <laughs> That'd be fair. There'd be a lot crazier things happening. At this uh, then they go back into the jungle, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, the um, he he's disillusioned by this, and he kind of loses his attitude. He, he abandons the self that he was, and just kind of becomes like a soldier, um, fighting for another man's war. Yeah. Uh, so they go down the river. Well, he walks back to the camp, and he encounters an injured guy <laughs> like in the middle of like a a, a brush. He's like, hey, you want me to carry you back? And the guy's like, ah, I'll just hang out here for a little bit. Uh, and, he gives, and he walks past him. That's the, that's the end of that. <laughs> I don't know why you remember things like that. Um, I don't remember any of that. But uh, he gets back, and then they go down the river. They're patrolling, like they're heading to another objective or something. Yeah, they're, they're given a new commander, uh, Lieutenant Band, according to this. Is it, this guy isn't a famous actor, right? Yeah, this guy sucks. Um, <laughs> I mean, Jesus, man. Well, not the actor, the the character. I'm trying to figure out who plays him. Uh, oh, that's right, because he, like, commands a few guys to, like, go ahead, and all the troops are looking at him like, dude, that's a fucking awful idea. Yeah. Like, he's played by Paul Gleason, um, who is, whose number one most known for film is this. So, yeah, not someone of particular note. Yeah. But, but uh, they're patrolling the river, and... Um, I don't know what happens to Nolte around this point. I don't think we see him Nolte kind of disappears, I'm pretty sure. A lot of people disappear around this point. Because yeah. we're, we're now just... Like, the movie kind of refocuses itself on... On Caviezel. On Caviezel and Adrian Brody. Yeah. Who's playing Fife, even though he doesn't have any lines. It kind of refocuses back on them. Yeah. Nolte kind of... His send-off is basically that he gets his glory of taking the hill, but at what 
costs, like what personal and larger costs, like right. His most trusted soldier, he fired. Well, he, uh, the men don't have reverence for him. Yeah. They have reverence for uh, Staros. Staros. They have reverence for the guy who we had to get rid of. Who? Not... Yeah, he was like looking out for him, telling yeah. him because they even say that when they're like taking the the rest is yeah. that hey, like Sarge, thanks for trying to look out for us yeah. by, by you know doing the flanking mm-hmm. maneuver thing. And it's like at the end of the day, Nolte just kind of gets confronted by this movie's themes and philosophy of like, what was the point of that? Yeah. You got your glory, but no one is holding it for you. Right. And that's what we leave Nolte with is kind of just a disappointed shell of a man whose last, all he wanted was glory and war, and that's the one thing he can never achieve. Yeah. Uh, all stars ever wanted was to keep his men safe, and he got fired for it. It's all just people getting confronted with the pointlessness of all this, the futility of what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. As this wit that he can no longer go home. So um, Jim Caviezel and Adrian Brody are in yeah, the river they're, with their they're battalion. Sent, they're sent to go scout ahead. And there's a lot of bombardment happening around them. Yeah. And So they scout ahead, and what do they see? The trees start moving. <laughs> they see a whole last battalion of Japanese soldiers coming towards them. Well, hold on. They're, they're in the river with their battalion, and there's a lot of bombardment, yeah. and the commanding officer wants to send a few guys yeah. to go scout. And they send and them And that's forward. Adrian Brody, five, or five, and then uh, Jim Caviezel, yes. Wit, and then one other guy. And the third dude who, 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 who you're gives like, a fuck about. Who we're like, oh, yeah, a third guy with uh, no name. Well, that's not going to go up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's surely going to survive after this, right? So the three go out, and as they're, like, scouting out, they yeah. that's when they see, like, you know, the trees moving and then all the, the Japanese soldiers with like tree brush camouflage yeah. around them. And they're all coming out and it truly like mortifying scene. Cause it's yeah. like, Oh fuck. <laughs> and uh, uh, they so start, the run- third guy doesn't make it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they start quickly. running away to try to warn uh, the battalion, but yeah. they start, the Japanese soldiers see them. So they start firing. One guy yeah. gets hit and he's slowly bleeding out again with the narrative that no one really dies quickly in this movie yeah everybody gets shot and they bleed out and die yeah um which i think is an interesting uh yeah reoccurring thing and so they're holed up and so then caviezel tells brody it's like hey like you go run back to the battalion and warn them all keep them preoccupied mm. doing the sacrificial thing and this kind of goes with the change in personality that you described which is he's now just become a soldier yeah, and he doesn't have anything to live for he doesn't have anything to live for and so war he, is war has truly corrupted him it's, yeah so he's running you know being chased by all these japanese soldiers adrian brody runs yeah. back to his uh, troops and he's like we all gotta get out of yeah. here like they're all coming and then meanwhile he runs into an open field surrounded by yeah. japanese soldiers and they ask him to surrender and he raises his gun and gets shot. And dies. And that's the end of Jim Caviezel in this movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, but they get back and... George Clooney is in this. <laughs> yes. You know what scene we didn't talk about? What did we not talk about? Um, after they've taken the hill, they take that little village near it. Oh, right. And, and it plays the uh, the iconic bit of music from this movie. Um, this movie is scored by Hans Zimmer. Yes. Who wrote like thousands of minutes of music. Not thousands, but a lot of music for this movie that doesn't get used. Right. Um, but a lot of the music from this movie, especially that leftover stuff, gets used as trailer music and like temp music in movies. I think this is one of the most tempt movies ever. Mm-hmm. And then people take the score from this and put it in other movies until they have an actual score. Right. Um, but it's like, it's the same bit of music that plays in the X Men Days of Future Past trailer, which I just remember this. 
It's like bah, 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 when they're taking the hill. They take this village. Yeah. Um, and the village, I think it's the most successful scene in the movie. In that they're like storming this village. And you're just seeing like Japanese guys like screaming as they light them on fire with flamethrowers. Yeah. And everyone's just looking around. It's just it just really drives home the mis like how miserable war is. And it's just like mad pandemonium. Yeah, not even like a terrifying thing. It's um, not even like a front of one side and one side yeah. coming together. It's that they get into this camp and, and they just, just start, start slaughtering yeah. people. And it's just kind of I think this movie more than most others I've seen really nails the misery of war. Yeah. Like movies like Apocalypse Now capture the horror of it, but this is just the misery. Yeah. Um, and you see that misery most personified within the enemy. Yes. Because they're all like trying to surrender. And yeah. They're not really being given quarter. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. But anyway, the music uh, under that is very like dauntingly terrifying. Yes. Because it's all happening. Because it's like, yeah. it's all very like light music. Yeah. But like, it's like sad music. But not heavy mm-hmm. or orchestrated sad music. And and around that part, there is one part that I like where Zimmer plays almost a tri like a a lower key rendition of a triumphant theme. Mm. Like it's something that would play over like a victory, but you're just watching what seems like a loss, like a moral loss mm-hmm. for a victory, and it's just a very subversive way of using that music to t- make a point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, back to the end of the movie. Caviezel dies. Yeah, they recover his body. Uh, they get a new commander, George Clooney. He has one shot in yep. which he monologues. He's like, about, hey, I run a tight ship as my command. <laughs> and then we're like, cool, George. Great. And then next scene, they're at a beach, and Sean Penn gets on the boat, and they leave the island. And that's, and that's the end of the movie. movie. <laughs> um, that's the thin red line. Yeah. It, why I, is it called the thin red line besides the, the fact it, that it's probably the name of the novel it's but. based on a line from a rudyard kipling poem hmm. um that i cannot find this sounds like a wikipedia thing you found out yes um it's a poem called tommy from like 1890 um and the thin red line is kind of uh i don't know i can't find specifically what oh here it is um, the in the poem he calls British foot soldiers the thin red line of heroes because they wore red around the time. Yeah, the red coats. And so it's like, you know, the thin red line is just a line of soldiers. Can I share? And it's also kind of you know a thin red line of blood. Yeah. Can I share a fascinating World War Two Japanese soldier story? Yes. To finish this off. So there, there, so. When all, like, the Japanese soldiers were, like, um, stationed out on these islands, mm-hmm. you know, they were all given orders to, like, I mean, pretty vaguely in some sense, like, kill as many soldiers as you can before you die. Yeah. Like, the one of the emperor w- once made, like, uh, you know, or commanding officers would often say, like, for every one of us who dies, ten Americans must be killed mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and it, it bred like this culture of like kamikazes and su- suicide um, uh, booby traps and all that stuff. Um, you know, uh, the knives at the end, bayonet, bayoneting, and all that stuff. Um, but what's most fascinating about culture-wise of the Japanese front of the war is how 
borderline religious war it was. Yeah. Was how far and willing to go because like the emperor was kind of a deity mm-hmm. in the uh, in that time, and so with that mindset now laid that groundwork laid to the audience, there was a soldier who was stationed on an island in the Pacific with like troops and all that, but as they were getting like bombarded and like they were one of the islands that w- didn't really have much attacks from like foot soldiers, but yeah. low it was just getting bombarded by navy troops and just uh being like demoralized and as like the the u.s was taking more of the japanese territory and coming closer to the mainland they would bring in any soldiers of islands that weren't being taken to more fortify closer islands and tactical positions except for the soldier because the soldier was so like how's the best way to put it like he was so like die hard willing to just like cause as much trouble because that was another thing too with yeah. like their war was like it was better to just be hiding and like cause more sabotage and cause more pandemonium than to just a flat out frontal assault yeah. like what the US would do. And so he spent years on this island attacking like local natives, any troops that were there, just causing a bunch of issues. And he stayed there for the full duration of the war. And then after the war, I presume. And after the war. Like, when they, like, relatives of his, like, when the empire toppled, like, relatives of his told, like, authorities, like, hey, like, we still have, like, a guy guy out there, and he probably doesn't know the war's over. So they sent, like, searching parties to find um, this guy. But this guy was so locked in in that he thought it was American propaganda. Like, they would, like, be having megaphones and be like, hey, like, private so-and-so, like, the war's over. Like, mm. you can come out. And he's like, no, I don't believe it. This is, like, yeah. American. Like, this is a real story that happened. Yeah. To the point where they were, like, fly- air raiding and flying in, like, leaflets to be like, private so-and-so, if you see this, the war is over. Like, come out of hiding and stop killing people. And it went on until, like, the 60s because eventually, I believe what happened was a journalist went out looking for this guy on an island. And I think it was an American journalist or maybe it was a Japanese journalist. I'm probably getting a lot of small details wrong, but the overarching story is true, guys. Went out searching and he found him. And rather than killing him, like he kind of like stuck around with him. And so these two guys are sticking around on this island and he's trying to just like fill his head with information of what's going on. He's like, so what's happening now? It's like, well, the war is over. He's like, all right. And like, and we have a different industry it's no longer the empire anymore there's no emperor like we yeah. have all this stuff and he, eventually he talks him into coming back to the mainland and he comes to the mainland and sees what post empire japan is like and hates it and he eventually finds out like okay so the war really is over but i hate what japan has become yeah. from this and then he just moves back to the island and <laughs> lived there is a real fucking thing yeah. that happened, guys, and it lasted like twenty yeah. years after Some the war had ended. There. I, I probably not, but like, it was a while, it was a while ago. Yeah. But like, I believe it was up until the sixties, if I if I recall, mm-hmm. that this guy still thought like the war was going on. He yeah. stayed out there, and he like lived like in the wilderness, like on his own, yeah, just like foraging and all camping and all that stuff for tw- over twenty years, yeah. And it's such like, it, it's a very 
looked at case study of like this mindset that many of the soldiers and troops had were indoctrinated were indoctrinated into in the japanese empire and what we were kind of up against Mm -hmm. it's a relic of that mindset yeah it's interesting i just think it's so cool that's very interesting so and when thin red line comes out oh yeah (laughs) it comes out um it makes 98 million dollars not around double its box office a solid hit they make back what they you know it it has no impact for john travolta he's not in that much of course of it. not it's just another example of how he's top of his game at this point it's, uh, it's impacts terrence malick though i imagine yes, it impacts terrence malick he pretty much just he gets blank check status after this and he more or less can make whatever he wants yeah. his next movie is the new world which is the live action pocahontas movie mm-hmm. um which is funny because Christian Bale is in that, but he's also in the animated Pocahontas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, gets, so- gets extremely solid reviews. Gene Siskel calls it one of the best war movies he's ever seen. Uh, Martin Scorsese ranks this as his number two best movie of the 90s. What's number one? Um, it's a movie that actually didn't really come out in the 90s, so, <laughs> so this is technically his number one. Um, I f- found it earlier, but I cannot find the list now. Uh, but it gets nominated for seven Oscars Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, um, Adapted Screenplay, yeah, Best Cinematography, Editing, Score, and Sound. Does not win any of them because it is the same Private Ryan Shakespeare in Love year, yeah. Um, pretty much all the technical awards go to same Private Ryan, um, which is arguably a greater technical accomplishment than this. So they, I think they are very comparable in just how like impressively made they are. Yeah, this movie's very well shot, and the action is very well staged, and the effects are very impressive. But Saving Private Ryan is better. Saving Private Ryan, yes, it's a little more, con- it's a little more tight, and just bigger scope, bigger yes. scale. Yeah, um, but it gets those seven nominations. It really marks like Malik's back. It would be disappointing if this movie did win more technical awards. Yeah. I'd almost rather it had been nominated for a lot of awards and not win any than if it was nominated and it won like fucking best special effects or whatever Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like that would have been almost a damnation of the movie because it's not you're not supposed to be focusing on the big and wow of the battle sequences yes uh so martin's because number one of the nines is a movie called the horse thief thief it's a chinese film it actually came out in 1986 but uh it was not released in america until later in the early 90s watch out martin scorsese jeff swing has got beef (laughs) (laughs) martin you beat (laughs) you burn uh but no, this um, this this movie is a major success. It does great things. A lot of Oscars. Still has a pretty solid cultural relevance nowadays. Um, got the Criterion Collection, you know, special uh, special edition. That's what I got. And uh, that's the Thin Red Line. Do you have any last-minute takes on the Thin Red Line? Not a lot of Travolta um, content for us. This not a lot of Travolta content. Just overall thoughts on the movie. It's probably not something I'd watch again. Just mm-hmm. because, I mean, it, I mean, I thought it was... It's long and miserable. It's long <laughs> and miserable. Um, it's like a movie you'd watch with your grandfather. Mm-hmm. Once. On a Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. Yeah. That you would pause in the middle of it to, like, make dinner. Eat. <laughs> and then you would watch the rest of it and he would fall asleep. Mm-hmm. That exact example. Yeah. That's the type of the movie this is. This um, is a movie I would definitely... I mean, I bought the Blu-ray. I'll, I'd definitely watch it again. I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was rather astounding. 
Um, but it is definitely a trying experience. It's, it is. You have to be in the effortful yes, mood. You have to be. You have to like ready to commit to watch this movie. Yeah, it's something that demands your attention. I was not in that mood when I watched mm. that mo- this movie. Yeah, hence me black blanking out on a lot yeah. of sequences, the details. So except for mustache and all caps on here. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down <laughs> mustache and all caps. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, that's basically more or less the last of my thoughts on the Thin Red Line. Awesome. Sweet. Um, yeah, let me. Uh, I need Joe to pull out the fucking outro I script. Always, I, always, I always forget. What to do happened, it. Jeff? You used to be like so. Well, I used to type up all my notes you, for these movies. You used to be so like segue ease into it, yeah. like be like, "All right, folks, that's the thin red line. That's our final thoughts, and you can catch us well, on." Well, and now you got to because like, I used to type all my notes up, but get now I just better. Read, now I just read them off my book. Our audience deserves better. They do. Uh, thank you all for listening to the Thin Red Line. <laughs> Make sure to tune next week for our episode on a civil action. Will we be civil about a civil action? No. Great. It's not. It's an uncivil, I, pod, it, uncivil podcast for civil action. I, I I'm gonna sue this movie. <laughs> You're gonna sue this movie. <laughs> I'm gonna sue this movie. Um, Make sure to rate, review, subscribe, whatever platform you're listening on. If you enjoy the show, please remember we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. We've been getting a lot of traction on our Google Podcasts recently, uh, so thank you to everyone who's been listening on that. You can find us at TravoltingPod on Twitter or Instagram for updates and fun stuff. Pop to our Reddit, r slash Travolting. Email any comments or questions to TravoltingPodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Sweeney. Find me on Instagram at StuartElmore95. And as always, special thanks to Rebecca Johnson for our graphic design and Michael Van Bodegum-Smith for the theme music that is now taking you out. See you, folks, next week. Fuck White Castle. Bye. Bye.